The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. A nation which nearly destroyed itself by civil war between North and South can only be healed by the binding together of East and West. Mark my words, gentlemen. It will be built. The only question which remains is, which one of you will join me in this mad, noble quest? Who among you will have to say in years hence that he stood idly by as this nation became an empire? And who among you will be able to say he lent a hand in making manifest our destiny as a great nation? Well, though, it's all horse crap. The faster I shovel, the faster they eat it up. But it was a truly inspirational speech. Twaddle and shite, I say. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 1st, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today, where, as always, the phone number to call is 519-661-3600 or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Or, of course, you can visit our page online, our, what is it, our Facebook page and the other places they can leave their comments, Robert? Facebook, yeah, we mm-hmm. also have a Twitter channel. Well, today on the show, we've got a number of subjects. I'll be looking at later on in the show, I'll be looking at the virtue of inequality, some comments on how inequality is affecting what's happening in North America today. And I'll be asking the question, okay, can you see? And I'll be referring to Jonathan Kay's view of capitalism and capitalists in the United States. And some of his views are, we talked about it a little bit earlier on another show. And you, of course, Robert, I understand are going to be gunning for the liberal establishment over that whole situation that happened in Kitchener there. And uh, They make a great target. Yes, no kidding. And One Man's Freedom, I think that's what you're starting off with, are you, Robert? Nope. Actually, that's my last part. that's the last part. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, what are you starting off with? I'll be starting off with uh, an announcement, a public service announcement for a group here on (laughs) campus called the Western Objectivism Society. Wow. And they'll be hosting a panel event, which I would encourage anybody who can uh, make it to attend. And it's on uh, Tuesday, March 6th at 7 p.m., here um, at the UCC in the Mustang uh, Lounge, and it's entitled Islamic Totalitarianism and the West. And uh, it features some panel, uh, some very, very um, excellent panels. Uh, Salim Mansour, a frequent guest mm-hmm. on this show, professor of political science at UWO, specializing in Middle East studies, author of Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism, a book which we, uh, which we talked about here on the show, and Islam's Predicament, Perspectives, of a dissident Muslim. Also on the panel, Jonathan Kay, 
who you're going to be talking about later, yeah. Bob, managing editor, editor of the National Post. I don't know and, if he'll uh, like me after that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he has a thick skin. Yeah. And visiting fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, author of Among the Truthers, A Journey Through America's Growing Conspiracist Underground. Also on the panel, Alain Giorno, fellow and director of Policy Rich. Uh, policy research at the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights, author of Winning the Unwinnable War, America's Self-Crippled Response to Islamic Totalitarianism. So that's at the Mustang Lounge at the UCC here on University of Western Ontario's campus. And um, that's on Tuesday, March 6, 2012, 7 to 9 p.m. But if you can't make the event, it's going to be streamed live online for free. Just go to livestream.com slash Ayn Rand Center for that feed uh, at that time. Also, I hope to be in attendance and will perhaps uh, cover it on a future show. So, what's been happening in the news of late? Well, if you listened into our show last week, I played an interview that I did with the chairman of the British Freedom Party, Paul Weston, who was uh, doing a North American tour and stopped by in Toronto. Uh, to speak to a the great Jewish defense. By the way, congratulations, defense. Robert. That oh, was a good one. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, it's already it's already been seen about you know, a thousand times online, it, which is pretty that, good that, for us. That's amazing. And considering that you know, I didn't agree with everything Paul Weston said, but I found everything he said worth listening to. Very compelling. Most that's the perfect word right there. Mm -hmm. If you haven't heard it, it's online. Now, last week, of course, because I played that whole thing, which ran about fifty minutes, I didn't have much time to report on my views. Yeah, and I got the day off. <laughs> yes, the first time in a long first, time for First you. time ever. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't have time to report on my views of his platform and the platform of the British Freedom Party. So today I'd like to take a few moments to do that right now. The word freedom caught my eye, as it did yours, I'm sure, Bob. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty powerful word, and any political party which uses it piques my interest. In this case, I don't believe that the British Freedom Party used the word in the same sense that I would. In 1984... The Freedom Party of Ontario was created with no thought whatsoever of foreign invaders or the Islamification of the <laughs> West. Those things simply weren't issues to be concerned with. They were totally off our radar. The party, that party, the Freedom Party of Ontario, was promoting individual rights with a limited government which ran under objective laws. The British Freedom Party, which, as Mr. Weston said during the interview, takes its name from Hert Wilders' Party for Freedom in the Netherlands, has at the core of its platform the repulsion of radical foreign Muslims who preach Sharia and wish to convert their host country into a Muslim state. So the use of the word freedom here, I think, is more of freedom from something rather than the promotion of freedom as a positive value crossing every aspect of an individual's life, which is what the Freedom Party of Ontario does. Now, many of the points of the BFP's 20-point plan reveal a misunderstanding, I think, of freedom as a right held by an individual in an objective sense. The BFP supports the continued war on drugs, point number 17. Quote, ensure that a no-class A drugs policy is enforced, unquote. Although Mr. Weston, to give him his credit, has said that they have yet to develop a comprehensive drug policy. I only hope they consider one that actually involves freedom when you, it comes to know, how one treats their own bodies and minds, because the continued war on people who take the illicit drugs leads me to believe that they don't believe that an individual has a right to their own life and can, and can do with it as they see fit, including polluting it if they so choose. 
You know, I thought he was giving some thought to that issue, though. He did. And that uh, it, we still don't know how that was going to end up at the end, but I think if they investigated closely and were to look at it objectively, they'd have to arrive at the same conclusion that a growing number of even police agencies are saying now mm-hmm. in the United States. They're, they're actually telling Harper now, hey, cool it on your anti-drug strategy. You, you don't want the problems we want. We got. A United know? Nations panel is actually saying that, as well as uh, mm-hmm. Richard Branson, sure. the uh, businessman, so, uh, adventurer. You know, they, weren't, they weren't hard-nosed on that one. Not, not nearly as hard-nosed no, as Harper like sounds. I, like I said, I will wait and yeah. see what um, f- policy they actually formulate. Perhaps um, it will involve some degree of freedom. Uh, but instead, they seem to be wanting to continue to treat criminals, uh, people as criminals, who, you know, when they take drugs, and um, including the relatively harmless cannabis, which was... Uh, I think it's a reaction to what is happening in their country. Perhaps. I actually don't think that it's central to their theme. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Right. Uh, But in any case, it's not freedom to me. It's an imposition of a set of moral standards head by some onto others. That's not freedom. Let's go to point number 18. It corroborates this view explicitly. Quote, promote morality, marriage, the family, the community, and the nation state. You know... On the face of it, that doesn't sound so bad. No, we promote morality. That's true. However, um, it sounds familiar. Canada's Conservative Prime Minister yeah. Stephen Harper has said that he believes in freedom, family, and faith, and that freedom must be tempered by faith. This isn't freedom. This is conservatism. Take point 20 of the BFP's plan. Quote, live by Christianity's golden rule. Do unto others as thou wouldst be done by, unquote. Now, the invocation of a tenant of one religion, no matter how benign-sounding, which that is, says to those not of that faith that a BFP government favors the Christian religion and that any freedom you have will be tempered by their faith in that religion. This point would have been better expressed as, quote, the BFP will allow people to exercise their freedom to pursue their own happiness so long as in doing so they don't interfere with the same right of others to do the same. There's no need to invoke a religion, a deity, a martyred Jew dead these 2,000 years. Okay, what if they had said instead live by Christianity's golden rule? What if, if they just said live by the golden rule? Yeah, would that, that have would been have been better? fine too, but what did they do? They invoke Christianity. Okay, that's, I see what you're, what you're pointing at. Why then. invoke Christianity? Don't they have a secular society? Well, I mean, sure, the head of state is actually the head of the religion, <laughs> the United Church. Remember, do unto others as thou wouldst be done by could be interpreted in some pretty negative ways as well. That's true. Yeah, what if you're a sadist or, or a masochist? <laughs> <laughs> or you want free drugs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But no, I, I'll take him right, for his sure. word. I mean, listen, that's it's a pretty benign-sounding yes. sentiment. And, um, but I sense the conservative values mm-hmm. here social conservative values. Um, Now, these are the major criticisms I have with BFP, the British Freedom Party. Some minor ones would be, for example, point number 13. And by the way, you can find these points on their website, uh, britishfreedom.org, I think it is. It's a beautiful piece of literature. Yeah, britishfreedom.org. That's a nice piece of literature. Yeah, they do have quite a a jazzy looking Mm -hmm. site. Take point 13, quote, withdraw troops from all areas where they are not directly threatened. Now, on the face of it, this doesn't sound like a bad policy, but sometimes you have to use foreign troops to protect your interests and citizens whether or not the nation is directly threatened. For example, if a third nation 
or third country interferes militarily in the trade you might have with a second country, your nation's not threatened, but the peaceful arrangement your nation has with the other country is. Another example is a hostile act upon an embassy, as Iran did to the American embassy in 79. I share the BFP's reluctance to send troops into other countries, but a proper military policy is a little difficult to put into one sentence in a 20-point plan. So again, I'll let that slide a bit. Point 11, quote, rebuild Britain's armed forces to 1980 levels. Okay, I'd agree that the British forces have been gutted since Thatcher. To use a 1980 as a benchmark, though, seems pretty arbitrary. A country's forces should be large enough to defeat any foreseeable enemy, period. In 2012, this might be quite different than in 1980. I don't know why they picked that, but I get oh, the maybe sentiment again. that was again. the year they thought that it was at that stage. Yeah, but I get the sentiment. In other words, they think that the British forces have been gutted too sure. far. Let's uh, bolster them a bit. Okay. Like I said, those are minor points. But now for the good points, and there are many of them. I agree with Paul Weston when he suggests that an official policy of multiculturalism is the most serious threat to any liberal democracy, such as ours. The notion is poison, and as we have seen in France, the Netherlands, Britain, Germany, and other countries, it has led to violence, segregated communities, division, no-go zones, and in an attempt, primarily by Wahhabist Muslims, to destroy the very nations they have moved into. I don't think we here in Canada realize just how bad it is over there. It just may be that this is the one singular point outweighs any objection I might have regarding the other points I just mentioned. But the rejection of multiculturalism is not the only point I would agree with with the British Freedom Party. I would agree that Britain should leave the undemocratic, profoundly corrupt European Union. I'd agree that they should abolish the Human Rights Act, just as we should here in Canada. I'd agree that immigration should be tightly controlled, but while Mr. Weston would like to see a complete cessation of immigration here in Canada, I would like to see it curtailed only for those countries whose cultures are diametrically opposed to ours. I've talked about this on the show before. Mm. I'd also agree with their uh, platform plank that uh, criminals should face the consequences of their behavior. This would apply particularly to violent criminal criminals, but would not apply, as I've said before, to drug offenses. And I'd agree that the education system needs to be repaired, something I'm going to be talking about after the break. But lastly, I'd agree that foreign aid should be ended. All of it. All of it. Which is what the BFP has been calling for as well. So, on the face of it, the British Freedom Party is a, what I think is, a conservative party. But, judging by its competition over in Britain, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party over in Britain, the UK Independence Party and the British National Party... I would say that the BFP, the British Freedom Party, is the only option for the United Kingdom. And personally, I found Mr. Weston to be very a very amiable man who knows his stuff. He oh, knows yeah. his issues. He's very a kind listenable. Of, hmm? Very listenable. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very listenable. I, I would think that he would make a great Prime Minister of Britain, and I wish him and his party great success. I sure hope they don't have the uh, problems that Heert Wilders has had, you know, and uh, the kind of issues that he's running into. Uh, I, I was just, I just was sent this interesting article in McLean's, just a brief comment. And, you know, in the whole thing, the McLean's article... What's it called? 
It's called Wilders Against the Slavs because they're picking on some question questionnaire that was on the Freedom Party, his, his Freedom Party's website. Uh. But what I found interesting, they, 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 they typify him as a person who made a political career out of bashing Muslims, which is not what he's done. It's Islam. And then I looked all through the entire article to see if I could find the word Islam once. It wasn't there. Hmm. Preconceived In a complete, but, but they referred to it in the third person several times. Wilder's politics, terms of the debate, all the problems we have, the political b- debate about what's important, lamenting Wilder's stand, opposing it, Wilder's message, all the way through and never once saying what his message is. This is denial on a scale. Well, we've got a long belief. way to go. We've got a long way to go. But listen, we've got to okay. take a break. Yep. And this break, uh, I'm going to be playing a little bit from the dinner speech which Paul Weston mm-hmm. gave in Toronto to a group of uh, invited uh, friends of the International Free Press Society in Canada. And my thanks go to the International Free Press Society for allowing me to be there and to film that as well. So just give a listen to Paul Weston as he gives Canada a warning. The liberal left are very happy with mass immigration because mass immigration provides them with mass votes. The conservatives simply refuse to talk about it or if they do, it's only to suggest that uh, Islamic Turkey should join the European Union. And the one party that will talk about it, uh, the British National Party, has quite rightly been sidelined in the eyes of decent British people because they, they have a, a, a very bad history of genuine racial bigotry and their leader is a Holocaust denier. So this leaves just one party in Britain at the moment that, uh, that, that, that could possibly be do, so, do something about it, which is the British Freedom Party, which I'm very proud to say I'm the chairman of. And uh, we want to stop any further third world mass immigration, and we want to stop uh, the Islamization of Britain. And we can do this by calling a halt to the building of any more mosques, by deporting all foreign-born terrorists and criminals, by refusing welfare payments to polygamous Muslims with large families, by closing down mosques found preaching violence and sedition, and by jailing imams who uh, think it's all right to call for the murder of Jews and homosexuals. In short, to make it difficult for Muslims who wish us harm in Britain to remain living in our country. And I know it all sounds totally unpleasant, But unless we do something like this, we are probably heading for a civil war that will make the breakup of Yugoslavia uh, pale into insignificance. We didn't make those colossal sacrifices between 1939 to 1945 in order, just a few decades later, to very meekly and abjectly surrender to a totalitarian ideology redolent of Islam itself. Now, we're not going to allow a 7th century doctrine of religious imperialism and who view our innate sense of decency, morality and generosity simply as signs of uh, Western weaknesses which they can, they can seize and use against us. We're not going to allow Islam to take their, their slow, steady, incremental control of Great Britain without at least putting up some sort of resistance. 
And I hope, I, I really desperately hope that we're not too far gone yet, uh, even if your Mark Stein has already written us off. Uh, but I'm going to close now by just asking that Canadians keep a close eye on what's happening in Europe and particularly in Britain and to call a halt today, right now, immediately, to, to any further expansion of uh, Islamic ideology and demographic growth uh, in Canada. Don't make the same mistakes that Britain has done, and uh, you, you can see this. Now, I'm going to fight for Britain. I'm prepared to lay down my life for Britain, but there's no guarantee that we're going to win this. There's no guarantee that Europe's going to win this. And if we go, and if North America goes shortly thereafter, then this is the illusion of permanency. Now, this has happened. Civilizations end. And we're looking at that situation right now. And if Western civilization goes, you know, this, is a, this is one of the kindest, most humane, most decent civilizations the world has ever known. And it's going to be replaced with Islam, the most barbaric, illiberal, totalitarian, pathologically cruel regime the world has ever seen. So I'm just going to say to you, please, Canada, look at what's happened to Europe, look at what's happened to Britain, and don't let it happen to you. Thank you. That, of course, was Paul Weston from the British Freedom Parody. You know, on this show, we've attacked the liberal left-wing ideology a lot. Now, do, if anybody out there has ever wondered what the actual consequences on a personal level would be to the implementation of a left-wing, liberal, politically correct, altruist philosophy? Well, we now know the answer. You know, sometimes an event encompasses so many of government's problems that it becomes a lightning rod for condemnation by just about everyone. This is from the National Post. Last week, Jesse Sansone of Kitchener, Ontario, was arrested inside his children's school when he arrived to pick them up after class. He was strip-searched and thrown in jail, while his wife was brought into the police station and his children taken by family and children's services. After several hours, Sansone was suddenly released with apologies and told the entire ordeal was triggered when his four-year-old daughter's teacher reported there may have been a gun in Sansone's home. The basis of this allegation was a picture she'd drawn of her daddy shooting monsters and bad guys. Sansone is not a firearms owner, and the closest thing to a gun the police found after searching his home was a plastic toy, unquote, from the National Post. The victims in this story are, of course, Mr. Sansone, his wife, and their children. The villains, well, let's make a list here. The teacher, who, upon seeing what must have been a remarkably rendered drawing from a four-year-old of a toy gun, you decides to, to tell the principal of the school of a potential threat to the welfare of the child. Villain number one. The principal who calls family and children's services or, and supports the, uh, the teacher's actions. Family and children's services who immediately call the police without doing any investigation. The police who show up to the school in marked cars and uniforms who handcuff Mr. Sansone and take him away in front of children and neighbors to be strip-searched and held for hours. The superintendent of education at the Waterloo Region District School Board, Greg Bereznik, 
who defended the actions of his staff, saying that educators are co-parents. And, of course, the biggest villain of all, perhaps, is Dalton McGinty, who defended the action of the school and who was the head of the liberal, altruist, politically correct philosophy here in this province. To be clear, at the outset, any adult who has responsible, uh, who is responsible for a child and, and has reasonable grounds to suspect that a child in their care is being mistreated by anyone should report their suspicions to the police. That's, that's a given, I think. Mm-hmm. But that being said, here is what was wrong with the behavior of all of the villains I've just listed. They're insane. They're nuts. They're lunatics who should not be in charge of children, arresting people, running school school boards, or running a government. But that's just my knee-jerk opinion, of course. The same opinion held by almost everyone I've heard on talk radio about this story. A more considered analysis would take the following form. They're insane. They're nuts. (laughs) (laughs) They're lunatics. I'm I'm just joking here, of course. I didn't believe the story at first. Honest. I didn't. It's it's that far out. It's that stupid. I'm thinking it's is that it insane. April 1st or March 1st? Okay. Long <laughs> month. Okay. Yeah. It's not unlawful for Canadians to own guns. And I think that is at the crux of this whole thing. It's not unlawful for Canadians to own guns. Therefore, if a child draws a parent with a gun shooting monsters and bad people, when the proper action for the teacher should have been... That's nice, dear. I hope he got them all. If I was a teacher, that's what I would have done. Yeah. That's a nice drawing. I hope he got all the monsters. On to the next subject. (laughs) (laughs) Who among us, males especially, as children, have not defaced their schoolwork with drawings of tanks, jet planes, dropping bombs, zombies and blood-covered Nazis, swastikas even? Or the hammer and sickle? Of course, the older ones among us remember a time when guns were thought of as weapons to defend ourselves with and to hunt with. They still are, but unfortunately around the late 1960s, the liberal revolution of the state education system implemented a systematic program of indoctrination into the pacifying of the populace. I remember as a school board trustee on the London board here that some trustees would even correct other trustees if they referred to those little dots preceding a point in a written document as bullets. I'm not know, kidding I, you. I know about that, yes. They would stop the meeting and say, oh, we call those fuzzy dots. We don't call them bullets. That's too violent. Get a grip, people. Such a dangerous philosophy of pacifism has disarmed us. That's beyond pacifism, sorry. But... Oh, that's just lunatic. That's why I'm saying they're <laughs> lunatics. They're insane. You know, I'm thinking, were they really afraid of the guns or were they really looking for monsters? <laughs> Maybe they sent the police looking for monsters because they believe in them. That's just as it's, plausible. It's just as plausible. Yeah. Where's the monsters? We heard yeah, there's monsters, we heard in, there's this monsters house. in your house. Let's check under the beds, yeah. check in the closets for monsters. This dangerous philosophy has disarmed us and has given our children the incorrect notion that guns, whether long guns or handguns, are evil and that they should be abolished. Well, that, of course, is wrong. Guns are tools which you can defend your life with and that of your family. If anything, children should be taught how to use them. I'm not saying a four-year-old, perhaps, but children should be taught how to use guns. People should be allowed to buy and carry handguns in this country. It flows from our basic right to our life that we have a basic right to defend it. And there's no better means than a forty-four strapped to your hip. 
I that, grew up in a world like that, where yeah. people own guns routinely, and nobody thought anything about it. A lot of, of us did. Yeah. I've got home videos of my uncles and father going out um, on Signal Hill in Newfoundland, shooting shooting uh, pop cans off the thing with their 22s, you know. It's now a national park, mm-hmm. but you know, that's just outside <laughs> the city. It's actually inside the city, but I don't know. Different times. Wrong times. But that leads me to the police. They could have stopped this witch hunt in its tracks by telling the principal that a drawing of a gun does not give them probable cause to arrest and search anyone. It doesn't give them cause to enter into anyone's house and search it. They should have chastised the principal and the teacher and the family and children's services personnel to stop wasting their time. But, unfortunately, the police in this country have been led to believe, erroneously, that they are the only ones who should be entrusted with guns. They believe, erroneously, that they have an exclusive monopoly on their possession and use, and that any civilian in possession of one is a danger to their children and the public. I'll say again, it's not against the law in this country to own a gun. As a matter of fact, a 12-year-old can own a gun legally in this country. As the police were taking Mr. Sansone into custody, family and children's services were taking the children into their custody. And these are the villains we must watch the closest. While the police eventually let Mr. Sansone go with an apology, kudos to them finally, the words from Allison Scott, the executive director of Family and Children's Services, quote, we're still investigating this one. The parents should move out of town now that Family and Children's Services have their eyes on their children. Very scary stuff. Superintendent of Education Greg Bereznik's comment about how teachers are co-parents has perhaps riled up people the most in this sordid affair. An educator definitely acts in loco parentis, or in place of the parents, as any adult does who's given temporary charge over a child while the parent is away, such as a babysitter. Yeah, but that's not co-parenting. <laughs> no, but in loco parentis does not mean that an educator can indoctrinate a child in contrast to a parent's wishes, except perhaps in Quebec. In loco parentis is restricted by the nature of the relationship between the parent and the adult given temporary charge of the child. In this case, a teacher's responsibility is to teach the child, not ferret out dirt on the parents so that the state can arrest them. Co-parenting implies an equal responsibility in the upbringing of the child. This is not the case. It doesn't even come close to the case. And in any notion that a teacher might have that he or she is a co-parent of their student must be dismissed here and now and once and for all. I've said it on this show before that the raison d'etre of the state education system is the political indoctrination of children. This case illustrates that perfectly. My advice to any parent with a child in public school is to get their children out of there as soon as possible. And if not, I'd strongly suggest that when your child returns home, you ask them about their teachers and what they've been learning and that you deprogram them. At the very least, teach them that to be free thinkers and to suspect anything a teacher tells them to be true and that it's possibly incorrect and that they must prove for themselves that it's correct. And finally, to the biggest villain of them all, Dalton McGinty. Although if Tim Hudick and the Conservatives or Andrea Horvath and the New Democrats were in power, I'd be addressing this to them as well because there are three Ps in a pod. Get out of our children's minds. Stop filling them with lies. Stop filling their heads with lies. Abolish the school boards. Put every public school up for sale and let parents have a choice in where they send their children and their tuition. 
dismantle this indoctrination machine you have going on here and let Ontario children grow up unencumbered by your anti-intellectual garbage spewed at them every day in the classroom. Of course, I'm not going to hold my breath, but that's all I've got to say on this because it's now the bottom of the hour and we're going to go for a little break and we'll be back right after this. Now, children, this is a window and I am shooting at the Indians and Dennis is loading the muskets. Oh, Dennis, do you know how... Sure, I know how from watching TV. Where's the gunpowder and the bullets? Oh, no, 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 dear. We're not really going to load, you know. This is just make-believe. Now, Indians, start creeping toward the cabin. That's right. Creep. Cower, girls. All right. Creep. 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 Now then, I'll start shooting. Get me another loaded musket, Dennis. Before they get here. Oh, all right, boys. All right, Indians. Creep, creep, bang! Cover, girls! Excuse me, Mrs. Webster, but you're banging. I beg your pardon? You're banging. You got a kapow! You got a what? When you shoot, you got to go kapow like that. Kapow! Kapow? Oh, 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 kapow. Oh, all right. All right now, Indians, once again, start creeping toward us. That's it. That's it. Kapow! are here to play your part. Credit Mobilier. Credit Mobilier will be awarded all major construction contracts on the Union Pacific Railroad. I own it. I'm giving you the chance to get in on the ground floor. So you'll be paying yourself to build a railroad with government subsidies. Now that, my friend, is inspirational. Yes, it is. But I can't afford these on a senator's salary. As head of the Congressional Oversight Committee on Railroads, I'm sure you will find a way to pay for them over and over and over again. Might I ask how many shares are here? 200. I think you'll find that's fair. 400 sounds fairer. Are you trying to renegotiate a bribe? Oh, bribe. Such a dirty word. Huh? Why don't you think on it, Doc? Hmm? <clears throat> We've got a vote before the committee next Tuesday. Good luck with your land speculation in Nebraska. Oh, 50,000 acres bought on the cheap. Hmm? What would happen to the value of that land? If I decided to route the railroad around it, take the stocks, Jordan. But I've decided to renegotiate. One hundred shares. 
Yowch. There's <laughs> been a lot of that going around lately, eh, Robert? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yet another example of someone being offered half of what they started off with <laughs> on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. That excerpt from the excellent Hell on Wheels, about which I'll have a little more to say after our next break. But right now I've got a bone to pick with Jonathan Kay on the issue of capitalism and capitalists. And, uh, you know, I, I've discovered that uh, he, he's, some of the things he's been writing lately have not been too capitalistic from my point of view. And one is left scratching one's head, wondering exactly where he stands on that issue. So as a result, I felt a little necessary to deconstruct a couple of Mr. K's recent commentaries, especially when his reasoning continually disparages capitalism. And specifically... Ayn Rand's version of capitalism. He goes out of his way to do that. The problem is, with respect to this first uh, commentary I'm going to look at, I I, I tend to agree with the overall theme and central observation that he's trying to make. But I totally disagree with how it was expressed. Uh, The picture painted by Kay in his analysis here, I think, is way out of focus and is kind of confused, to say the least. I have another Kay commentary to, to glance at later in the show. And which regrettably leads me to conclude that this is not an isolated kind of thing, if you know what I'm saying. This one you can see in the National Post on February 24th by Jonathan Kay, and it's titled, Loving Capitalism, Hating the Capitalist. Interesting title. Actually, it should be titled, Hating the Successful Capitalist. And the word success is the word that's here, but not stated enough, because that's really what they're all complaining about is success, not capitalism. And, it recur- and he's referring to the shortcomings of, quote, Mitt, Rom- uh, Mitt Romney in the, in the states and presidential election. And he's wondering why, you know, Republicans are even leery about this guy and leery about nominating, quote, a successful capitalist as their presidential candidate. And he writes, that seems weird, I know. Capitalism is what turned America into the richest and most powerful nation on earth. Now, that's an important sentence right there, for him to say that. He, so he's admitting that capitalism is what turned America into this rich and powerful nation. Now, given that admission, consider his following comments, right? He says, Many Republican voters, Tea Party types especially, venerate capitalism to the point of cultism. The idea that smaller government, lower taxes, and freer markets will save America from the nightmare of Obamanomics has become a cliché of GOP debates. For laissez-faire utopians, must be us, what better standard bearer than a corporate raider and a hedge fund magnet who made hundreds of millions of dollars through the creative destruction wrought by savvy investment, leveraged buyouts, and the occasional mass firing? But American history suggests otherwise. This isn't the first time right-wing America has gone through a capitalist mania. And yet, as Slate's Abbey Olheiser pointed out earlier this week, the United States hasn't put a successful CEO into the White House since Herbert Hoover in 1928. Why? One obvious answer is that creative destruction is wonderful in theory, but often devastating and inhumane in application. Romney's company, Bain Capital, enriched many people and built up many businesses. But like all successful investment companies, it also acted ruthlessly to close down or sell non-performing assets. In 1992, for instance, Bain bought American Pad and Paper, a century-old company that was then famous for yellow-lined legal pads, for $5 million in cash and $35 million in debt. The day of the Bain takeover, all the employees were fired, then rehired for lower wages and with no union. A few years later, Bain took the company public. 
A few years after that, it went bankrupt. Now, I'm going to stop here for a minute because I really have to wonder why he picked an example of a company like that. All of that just means the company was going downhill all the way, you know. In an age of home computing, just how much more can you expect yellow-lined legal pads to keep expanding in the marketplace, right? It's an insane expectation. The market has changed. People aren't buying them anymore. And yet people, there's that mentality that the capitalist has to keep that business going no matter what the marketplace is telling him. And as if capitalists act on their own initiative, as if they just make things up as they go along which is totally not the case, of course. Then he describes, this is how capitalism works. Boom and bust. Some people get rich, others lose their homes. On on balance, society gets richer. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? He admits that. But to those affected, it all seems ghoulish, no matter how many times you've read Atlas Shrugged. (laughs) Okay? But what he's really saying is, this is how capitalism works. Success and failure, not boom and bust. Some people are successful. It's not that some people get rich. Others lose their homes. No, some people are not successful. And then he says, but to those affected, what he means is to those who failed. So obviously the failures of a particular enterprise aren't going to be too happy about capitalism, are they? (laughs) And yet that is the power of capitalism, to weed out the failures. And if you don't allow failure... You'll never have freedom. You'll never have the kind of economy you want. It's propping up constantly failed and under-operating businesses that gives us the kind of situation we're in today. So, you know, he says that all this seems very ghoulish. And I'm thinking, what seems ghoulish? Capitalism or the consequence of economic failure? And he says, you know... Then he writes, uh, donning this sort of revolutionary garb is difficult for Romney, and not just because of his personality or hairstyle. Rather, it is because the defining motive of a capitalist is self-interest. And the pursuit of naked self-interest always is inherently anti-heroic, except in the make-believe world of Ayn Rand novels. Well, I have to interrupt here again. I was about to have you did. Yes. You know... If he's read an Ayn Rand novel, he would know that's not true. In fact, in Ayn Rand's novels, the world is even more negatively disposed towards a capitalist. That's what the book's about. It's called Atlas Shrugged, right? Not only that, Atlas Shrugged, while thought to be prophetic, hasn't even touched the surface of how bad it can get out there. Oh, and you know, that was the point of her books. You know, the irony of Kay's observation is that it is in our real world that people are beginning to see the capitalist as a hero. Thanks to Ayn Rand's novels that illustrated the world as it is, a capitalist-hating, socialist-infested cesspool of irrationality and destruction. That's what she was talking about. But this seems to be lost on conservatives, which was also her point and what she was writing about. Now, here's Jonathan Kay in picking on her, demonstrating what she has said. And this is, you know, it's, it's really amazing. And then he, then he writes, that is why voters instead express admiration towards sport heroes, former actors, astronauts, etc., etc. You know, anybody except the capitalist. Uh, you know, as if the defining motive of the socialist wealth redistributor is something other than personal self-gain in the form of dog-eat-dog socialism, you know, that they, that they have. It's the pack destroying the leader. Then he quotes American sociologist Robert Nisbet in his book, The Present Age, 1992, quote, always the ultimate distinguishing mark of the gentleman. The individual of honor was his relative separation from money-making as a primary vocation of, in life. In the beginning, only the aristocracy, royalty, and the clergy could be men of honor. 
Then one by one, slowly, almost grudgingly, lawyers, judges, doctors, bankers, professors, novelists, poets, dramatists, and others became the same. Some of these acquired honor, or the capacity of honor in the early, uh, early in the modern age, as lawyers and scholars did. Others, like writers, publishers, engineers, and dentists, relatively late. But always where honor and dignity existed, there had to exist also the presumption of non-monetary as the raison d'etre of one's life. Isn't that interesting? That's why in the opening clip that we hear from the, mo- from the show Hell on Wheels, he's giving that speech that he says is all crap. <laughs> because he, and shite. Right. He's appealing to the Jonathan Kays and the people who think like this, the conservatives. Yeah. You know, because he knows it's crap, too. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, j- just uh, another irony of this, of course, is the fact that those seen to operate on other than monetary motivations are always calling for the government to, to distribute money. <laughs> you know, isn't that monetary motivation? The only difference is the one group steals it, the other group creates it. And that is the difference. And then uh, Kay writes Nesbitt's larger point in this passage is that the unfettered American veneration of the cash nexus is a threat to other virtues that conservatives once took care to admire. Well, you know, this cash nexus he talks about is not capitalism, it's socialism. It's that ultimate greed for anybody's cash and just redistribute it. Obamanomics, which which he's in support of. So, you know, if this is the problem that Americans are having... Oh, he says... He asks... Oh, sorry. He says... Uh, referring to his, the person he quoted, he says, I know of no other thinker who better nails the reason why American voters are so distrustful of capitalism's high priests, even while singing from their laissez-faire hymn book. Okay. <laughs> Talk about negative, eh? Very disparaging. Yes. And then he, then he adds one last point. He says, let me add one thing about Romney, lest I leave leaders, readers with the idea that I see him as some sort of monster. In 1996, when the 14-year-old daughter of a Bain colleague went missing, Romney moved heaven and earth to get Bain people out on the street and look for the child. According to an objective account of the incident, Romney, quote, closed down the entire firm and asked all 30 partners and employees to fly to New York to help find the colleague's daughter, end quote. In part, thanks to Romney's efforts, the child was found unharmed. Closing down a profitable company just to find one child? That doesn't sound very capitalistic to me. But it does sound heroic. In the vast space between those two words lies Romney's problem. Isn't that amazing? So I have to say, if that's the problem, then it's not Romney's problem, it's America's. Closing the factory, his factory down, he just closed it, he didn't close it down. To find a colleague's child sounds very capitalistic to me. It certainly doesn't sound socialistic or communistic or fascistic. What are the other what are the other alternatives? State-owned and controlled companies would be prohibited from doing what he did with his private company. The mistake made is the common assumption of what the capitalist values. That is what drives a capitalist, whether honorable as a specific individual or not. Those who see money itself as an end in itself are incapable of understanding either capitalists or capitalism. But thanks to the law of self-interest, you can rest assured that Romney's decision to help his friend was no act of self-sacrifice. But only he will be able to appreciate the gain, since it was his, and it was not measurable in dollars. However much Romney valued his efforts to help his friend, you can bet that it was more than what he felt it cost him by closing the factory. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. A perfectly capitalistic action. 
I wonder, is the Republican concern with Romney really about his being a successful capitalist or about his potential as a politician, which is not the role of a capitalist? The ideal politician would have to be a philosopher and a leader concerned with freedom and capitalism, not with the choosing of winners, successful capitalists, or losers, unsuccessful capitalists in the marketplace. Personally, I don't even think that a business capitalist is what you would want in governance. You'd want a philosophical capitalist whose interest in governance is not a personal self-gain, but the assurance of a capitalistic environment in which each individual is free to gain without taking from others without their consent. Capitalists exist under all economic and political systems to some degree or another. They existed before capitalism. That's a fact. But in the field of self-interest or greed, capitalists do not stand alone, being joined by every other definable economic interest group in society. Labor, voters, consumers, employers, self-employed businessmen, farmers, renters, parents, you name it. All operate on self-interest or greed, if you want to call it that. And successful politicians, just like successful capitalists, must appeal to the self-interest of their constituents. The reason that, quote, the ultimate distinguishing mark of the gentleman, the individual of honor, was his relative separation from money-making, as Kay's earlier selected quote read, is a direct consequence of the negative and false attitudes towards money-making by the collective culture of the day. From Charles Dickens to the Roman Catholic Church, money can only be moral if given to the poor or needy not earned by the greedy or the self-interested. Never mind that the so-called poor and needy are every bit as greedy and self-interested as the next guy. If you've, got, you know, if you've got the money and he doesn't, you're the bad guy. That's pretty well where we're at. Part of the problem with having a capitalist in government is that most capitalists are under the presumption that government should be run like a business. But that's been the exact problem. Government has been run like a business, a failing one, instead of being limited to its constitutional function of governing the main function which it has abandoned. Government is not a business. It does not make a profit. It does not exist to make a profit. Government is a non-productive entity and does not operate on consent except in the enforcement of consent within the public or private spheres of law. So the reason for this is that government, you know, could not possibly be an instrument of justice if it were to be run like a business. And that's basically my, my main point about Kay's complete ar um, article here. Now, I'm going to take a break now, and what we're going to be hearing is a couple of quotes or outtakes from the television series Hell on Wheels. And we'll be back right after this. Mr. Drunk. Sir, an honor and a pleasure. It's quite an establishment you've got here. Only sorry you're closed for the night. Our next show begins at dusk tomorrow. Quiet, you daft bastard. This is Thomas Doc Durant. A private view that'll be having. Thank you. Uh, how much? Uh, that'll be five dollars. Go on, Rage. For a private show? Mickey, showtime. I have followed your exploits and investments since I got off the boat. <laughs> How you rose up from nothing. Pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You're a gentleman and a true capitalist. Thank you.
villain you want? I'll play the part. After all, what is a drama without a villain? What is the building of this grand road if not a drama? This business is not for the weak of heart. It is a thorny, brutal affair that rewards the lion for his ferocity. What of the zebra? What of the poor zebra? Well, the zebra's eaten as the zebra should be. Make no mistake, blood will be spilt. Lives will be lost. Fortunes will be made and men will be ruined. There will be betrayal and scandal. And perfidy of epic proportions. But the lion shall prevail. You see, the secret I know is this. All of history is driven by the lion. We drag the poor zebra, kicking and braying, staining the earth with his cheap blood. History doesn't remember us fondly. But then history is written by the zebra for the zebra. One hundred years hence, when this railroad spans the continent and America rises to be the greatest power the world has seen, I will be remembered as a caitiff. Malefactor who only operated out of greed for personal gain. All true. All true. But remember this. Without me and men like me, your glorious railroad would never be built. Closing scene of the first episode of Hell on Wheels, a new TV show starring Colm Meany, known by millions as Miles O'Brien on more than one Star Trek series, eh, Robert? Great actor. Got a role here that's magnificent and truly worthy of his fine acting talents. Thomas Doctorant is his character played on Hell on Wheels in 1865, I think it was around? 1865. Telling of the building of the American Railway, funded by the American government and exploited by the capitalist who creates and builds the capital. That's sort of the theme of Hell on Wheels, as the viewer is introduced to new characters, new capitalists, at each, as each episode progresses. Uh, I've only seen a few, and boy, this seems like television at its finest. You know, great scripts, great sets, great actors, all live up to a truly high standard. And I'm sure I'll be uh, talking more about this show in the future, and put this one on the top of your to-watch list. One last comment I just wanted to make about a second quick comment, something that, again, uh, was said by Jonathan Kay. Obama is right, he writes, inequality is a threat to capitalism. 
And he says that the problem in America is that Americans' ignorance of how unequal their society has become, that the reality in the United States is that the richest fifth of the population controls 85% of the country's wealth. I can't believe this kind of stuff coming from somebody like Jonathan Cave, supposed to be a conservative. To Actually, the extent, it's perfectly typical for a conservative. Well, maybe it is, and I'm just stupid about it. But, you know, if, if they had control 85% of the wealth, as long as they're not in the government, then they created it. They didn't control it. That's where it came from. But, you know, he talks about this polarized society, and it's not between rich capitalists and everyone else. The richest fifth of American population is only sprinkled by capitalists. The rest are government bureaucrats, politicians, and those who work for the government, just like in Canada. You know, policemen, firefighters, teachers, and just about anybody else who's landed a government job is making it twice as much as the average worker or capitalist who's forced to financially support this wage gap. And that is, I think, the situation that cannot endure and cannot be allowed to endure. We'll talk more about that on a future show, and we'll be wrapping it up for today as we continue our journey into the right direction. See you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. In my sign factory is fantastic. Every day we are making 10,000 signs. I think it is fantastic. <laughs> Tell me, what do the signs say? Factory closed. <laughs>